So join with me, follow along. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendour and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendour of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Thanks very much, Carolyn. Uh, it's lovely to be with you again uh, this week. Can I ask you, please, to make sure you have the insert in front of you? If you don't have one, if you pop your hands up, the ushers will bring you one, because on the back is an outline, and this week there are blanks that you have to fill in, which is just my way, as you know, of making sure that you don't drift off. Um, we'll also have a point in the service as well where I'll get you just to turn and talk to the people around you about a couple of questions. So you really want to have that in front of you? Uh, Bible reading on one side, uh, outline on the other. Um, and as you get yourself organised there, why don't I lead us in prayer and we will get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it tells us just how magnificent and wonderful you are. We pray that this morning as we think about uh, your incredible majesty and glory, that you might fill our hearts with an overwhelming desire to sing your praises. Amen. Well, I wonder when the last time was that you experienced something so good that you couldn't stop talking about it. You experienced something so good that you just couldn't stop talking about it. Maybe it was a work success, possibly a new relationship, a long-awaited holiday, victory on the sporting field. Or perhaps you've met someone recently who was in that zone uh, with an overwhelming excitement that is on the one hand, either deeply infectious or, on the other, just incredibly annoying. Uh, they just won't stop talking about it. Well, Psalm 96 is written by someone who just can't keep quiet about something so amazing, so amazing that they blurt it to everybody and they want everyone to hear about it. Uh, in many ways, it's one of those psalms that, to be honest, I found really hard to get my head around this week because, unlike many of the psalms, this one is not what you might say smoothly logical. Uh, there's no clear structure or development within the psalm in many ways. It just feels like a stream of consciousness, uh, hence the reason why I haven't even bothered trying to lay it out in a fancy way for you. It's just printed there from top to bottom. 
The big idea in the psalm is in verse 4. God is most worthy of praise. God is most worthy of praise. And so this morning, for just a few minutes, uh, and remembering the tool that I was talking about last week for how we read the Psalms, I want us to focus first on what God is like, what the Psalm is telling us He is like. Secondly, how Jesus is the fullest revelation of God and shows us most clearly uh, the majesty of our great God. And then finally, what it might say to us today. And you'll see each of those three points on the outline. So point one then, what Psalm 96 says about God. Well, um, as I said, the big idea in this psalm is that God is most worthy of praise. The reason for that is because of what he is like. He is worthy of praise because of what he is like, who he is and what he has done. You see that in a number of different ways throughout the psalm. So, for example, in verse 5, we are told that he is our maker. Verse 5, the Lord made the heavens. This is the big idea from Psalm 95 that we reflected on last week. He has the whole world in his hands. Uh, But another reason why God is worthy of praise because of what he's like is he is our saviour. Verse 2, sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Now, of course, this is an Old Testament psalm and uh, therefore it's from God's Old Testament people, Israel. When they speak of God being their saviour or the salvation that comes from God, first and foremost, of course, Israel is referring to the Exodus to that extraordinary event where God rescues an entire nation from slavery and brings them into the promised land. Never happened before in the history of the world. Probably never will again. No wonder Israel was so ecstatic in their praise. So God is worthy of praise because of what he's like. He is our maker, he's our saviour. The unexpected dimension for which God is worthy of praise, though, comes at the end of the psalm in verses 10 through 13. He is the judge of all the earth. God is worthy of praise because he is the judge of all the earth. Pick it up in verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant, everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. This is unexpected, is it not? To say that God is worthy of praise Because he's the judge of all the earth. I take it that what the psalmist is saying is that God's reign, uh, verse 10, God's reign, uh, what it would be like if his kingdom did come and his will was fully done on earth as in heaven, the psalmist is saying that in God's reign, it's primarily seen not in blessing or prosperity, not in security or safety, It's primarily seen in judgment. Now, perhaps you're sitting there thinking, this feels problematic. This feels problematic to be proclaiming a message about God is worthy of praise because he is the judge. And I understand, of course, our initial sentiment there. But ultimately, I don't think this is a problem. I say that because all of us know the pain of injustice. 
uh, be it on a global scale, the haves and the overwhelming have-nots, be it on a national scale as we see appalling conflict between nations, even in this week gone by. And we see and feel injustice most of all at a personal level, particularly for those of us who tragically have been victims or survivors who can never be fully compensated or made whole again. Psalm 96 is saying, God will not stand idly by. He will intervene to make things right again. And for that, he is worthy of praise. Little wonder then that, of course, Psalm 96 doesn't call us to say God's praise. Look at how it began in verse 1. It calls us to sing his praise. Verse 1, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Verse 2, sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Not just say, but sing. It's a powerful image of ecstatic celebration. Psalm 96 doesn't just say solemnly intone or recite God's praises, you know, yay. It's a picture of uncontrollable delight, of joy that you cannot keep in. Now, Scott's already reminded us that, of course, about the only time we sing in our culture is when our footy club wins, when you sing the victory song. Uh, Likewise, at a sporting event, how do we begin? We begin with the national anthem that's meant to be belted out, not just kind of mumbled together, but put to music. When might you do this? When might you sing, therefore, Psalm 96? Well, here's an interesting suggestion. Um, Just if you're taking notes, if you note 1 Chronicles chapter 16, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 16 includes Psalm 96 almost word for word, a couple of minor variations. And in 1 Chronicles 16, what's happened is that the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God is said to dwell amongst his people, it's finally been restored to Jerusalem. It was in exile, in a sense, in Philistine. It's been brought back. And at that moment, as they bring the Ark back into Jerusalem, people burst into song with the words of Psalm 96. And I take it they do so because it's Well, it's instinctive, it's natural, it is the right thing to do. Clearly, when the ark returns, it's not because the Israelites have gone and got it, it's because God has brought it back. And so at that point, it is right to burst into song and praise. And yet the interesting thing is that Psalm 96 doesn't just talk about God bringing the ark home. It praises God not just for that particular moment. It gives us a chance to wax lyrical and to carry on about all that God has ever done and what he is always like. I take it that's the reason why in verse 1 when it says, Sing to the Lord a new song, it doesn't necessarily mean sing to the Lord a song because of a new thing. It actually means sing to the Lord about an old thing that is so good that the praise has to be repeated and retold and reappropriated for this very moment. And if you want to think about an example that perhaps we Australians resonate with, that, of course, is what we do every April 25th on Anzac Day. We don't sing a new song. We sing a song that reminds us of those who are worthy of praise from years gone by. 
So that's the first thing to say about what God is like. Um, He is worthy of praise because of who he is and what he has done. The second thing to say here is that everyone ought to sing the Lord's praise. Everyone ought to sing the Lord's praise. Or God is so worthy of praise that it is right that he receive universal recognition and acclaim. The reason I say that is because as the psalm unfolds, you'll see that there are three different groups of people who are called to praise God. Three different categories, in a sense, who are called to give the praise to the God who is worthy of it. The first and most obvious, of course, are God's people Israel. This is an Old Testament psalm. God's people in the Old Testament are the Israelites. And so the first group of people who are called to praise God are the Israelites. Uh, You see that particularly because you'll have noticed if you look carefully at the handout and the Bible reading, in the Bible reading, in the the 13 verses there, uh, it actually talks less about God and more about Lord in capitals. Eleven times, in fact, throughout, you see the word Lord. Now, that's the... Uh, the, the English Bible's way of translating the word that we might call Jehovah or Yahweh. Uh, this is Israel's personal name for God. Not just any old God, but their God, the one who rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And so Psalm 96 calls on Israel to praise her God. This is Israel's God. Not just any God you feel like. This is not the Muslim god Allah. This is not any of the millions of Hindu gods. This is not an endorsement of some kind of indigenous spirituality. This is Israel being called to praise Yahweh. Sometimes I hear people say that, well, in the end, don't all religions believe the same thing? Doesn't, doesn't everyone worship the same God? They just have different names for that God, for that deity? I understand why people might think this. Interesting, of, interesting thing, of course, is that the only people who ever say that are people who don't believe in any God at all. It's generally only atheists who would dare suggest that the Muslim God, Allah, is the same as the Jewish God, Yahweh. And so in verse 10, when the psalmist says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns, it's a call actually for God's people to declare Yahweh to the ends of the earth. Because, well, verse 4, he is to be feared above all gods. Now, as we'll see shortly, this God, this one who is to be feared, uh, he is most fully revealed in Jesus. Uh, And yet, before we get there, Psalm 96 reminds us that the praise of Yahweh is not just for the Old Testament Jews, it's actually secondarily for all nations, all peoples throughout the earth. So come back to Psalm 96, look at verse 3. Declare his glory among the nations. Or verse 7, ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Or verse 9, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, tremble before him all the earth, all the earth. Which of course takes us back to verse 1, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. 
What Psalm 96 is doing is issuing an invitation. It's saying, come and join us. Come and join us. Whatever you were doing before, stop doing that. Come and learn a new song that is very, very old, but eternally wonderful. So who's to sing God's praise? Well, Israel, but equally all the nations and all the peoples of the earth. The third category actually aren't people. Well, it's creation itself that is meant to sing God's praise, even inanimate creation. And this is completely over the top. Look with me at verse 11. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. So the psalmist is saying, let all the sea creatures and the sea itself sing praise to God. Verse 12, let the trees of the field be jubilant and you know all the things that live in the trees, let them be jubilant as well. Verse 12, let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Verse 13, let all creation rejoice before the Lord. Now, this is, at one level, it's just hyperbole and a pretty extreme kind of personification, isn't it? Calling on creation itself even to praise God because he is worthy of it. Um, Here's how I've thought about this idea. What the psalmist is saying is not just shout the good news about God to the hills, may the hills themselves join in shouting about what God is like. Not just, this is going to be really corny, but you're going to remember it. It's not just that the hills are alive with the sound, (laughs) but the hills themselves ought sing God's praise. That's how majestic he is. Now, on your handout, the blank for you to fill in there, I've called this unconstrained praise the inevitability of evangelism. The inevitability of evangelism. That is, Psalm 96 is saying more than the importance of evangelism or more than the need for evangelism. It's actually describing the inevitability of evangelism. God's people will always testify to what God is like Because that is right. And in fact, it would be wrong if we did not. Because the news about what God is like is so good, you cannot keep it in. You want no one to miss out on it. And so you are compelled to invite everyone to come join us too. Well, I'm going to come back to that idea at the end, but before we do... As I said, the fullest revelation of what God is like and why he's worthy of praise is seen in Jesus. And so, point two there on your handout, how does Psalm 96 point us to Christ? A couple of thoughts here. Firstly, um, traditionally, Psalm 96 was sung on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, for obvious reasons. The one who comes to us in the form of a baby, actually, he is maker, sustainer and judge of all the earth. And so for that reason, there are a whole number of passages in the New Testament that come to mind as you read Psalm 96, perhaps Colossians 1, Jesus, who is the maker and sustainer of all things. Maybe Acts 17, Jesus is the one before whom every person will give an account. But actually, as I um, spent time in Psalm 96 this week, what struck me most was that it points us towards the way in which those who meet Jesus in the Gospels and who see what Jesus is like, 
and what he has done for us, they cannot keep it in. There's a short passage that I printed there for you from Mark chapter 5. It's the end of a story. The story goes something like this. Uh, Jesus is in the region of the Gerasenes and he meets a man who has been demon-possessed and Jesus performs an exorcism, casts the demons out of him and the demons come out of the man and they go into a herd of pigs and you know the story, the pigs run down the hill and they're drowned and so the villagers lose the pigs but the man's life is saved. And as a result, the villagers are just a mixture, I think, of terrified of Jesus as well as slightly resentful that they've lost their livelihood. So they ask Jesus to leave. This man whose life has been irretrievably and irrevocably turned around for the good, he comes to Jesus with a pretty reasonable request. He says to Jesus, Jesus, can I go with you? Which I reckon is probably exactly what I would have said if Jesus had done that for me. And Jesus, in what I suspect must be a failure of Pastoral Care 101, says to the man, no, actually, you can't. Seems pretty heartless, doesn't it, given all that he's been through. But instead, he says, go back to the villagers who won't listen to me, but they'll listen to you. Tell of everything that's been done for you. So Mark chapter 5, verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man had been demon-possessed, begged to go with him, but Jesus didn't let him, said, go home, To your own people, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. Well, I'm going to pause for a moment um, and what I'd love you to do is just with the people around you um, for a couple of minutes, look at the discussion question there. The discussion question is, What is it about Jesus that makes him worthy of your praise and why? What is it about Jesus that makes him worthy of your praise and why? Before you do, I thought I'd tell you, for me, what my answer to that question is. Um, Over the last year or so, throughout this time of COVID, what I've been reflecting on is how, despite all the uncertainty and all the challenges and all the losses and griefs of this last year, I keep being reminded of Jesus' promise that he will build his church and nothing will prevail against it. (coughs) This week gone by on campus, uh, I've been meeting for the last six months with a third-year student um, who wasn't a Christian, has wanted to hear about who Jesus was this week, finally, after six months of catching up each week to read through Mark's Gospel and then Ephesians, he gave his life to the Lord. And I think, isn't that wonderful? That's Jesus at work doing what he said he always would. He will build his church and nothing will prevail against it. For me, that makes him worthy of my praise. So can I get you just for a couple of minutes, the person next to you, what is it about Jesus that makes him worthy of your praise and why? And then I'll call us back together. Go for it. Okay, thank you everybody. I am going to call you back together just for a couple more minutes. Thank you for taking the time to do that. Come and tell me afterwards. I'd love to hear something from what uh, has been significant for you. Uh, Well, as I said, the way in which we're working our way through this series and this talk in particular, what Psalm 96 says about God and what he is like, how it points us to Jesus. Let me try and wrap us up then with point three. What does Psalm 96 ask of us today? 
are two ideas from today's talk. The first is, as I uh, mentioned earlier, uh, Psalm 96 reminds us of what I've called the inevitability of evangelism. See, Psalm 96 is not a secret code word song, uh, one that only the initiator get to hum behind closed doors. Psalm 96 is telling us what God is like, and that is so wonderful that it's news to be belted out for the whole world to hear. It's not just God's people praising God before others as if you know, we're up on stage and they're out there in the grandstand watching on. It's actually saying, get out of your seat. Come on down. Join in the celebrations with us as well. Now, it does strike me that it is somewhat sad that about the only time we freely sing another's praise is in a situation like a political triumph or a sporting victory. And of course, my analogy breaks down at this point because in both situations, there's a winner and a loser. Uh, most of you know that 18 years ago, uh, my wife and I moved here from New South Wales. And um, one of the first things that happened uh, when we got here is that from almost the first day, you know, the first question that people would ask us was, so which AFL team are you going to support? And people would go to extraordinary lengths to persuade us that we ought to be Crows or Port supporters. Now, for myself, um, I actually sensed that my decision could potentially half alienate half of the congregation. Um, so actually what I decided was that I'd tell everyone, firstly, I'm from New South Wales, so I think Aussie rules is stupid. Um, I think I just, that way everyone would feel the same about me. Um, and that I'd choose to support the Swans, um, which I do so whenever they're winning, uh, so not today. It was a really good reminder for me that Lots of Christians care enough about how their club is most worthy of praise and they don't want anyone else to miss out on being part of that praise so they'll do almost anything to recruit others to their cause and that the social cost of speaking up, the risk of rejection if others don't want in, that never stops them trying. Why? Because they just don't want anyone to miss out. Psalm 96 is a song that speaks to the inevitability of evangelism. We have a God who is most worthy of praise, so his name ought be praised to the ends of the earth. Here's my second idea, though, and here's where I'm going to finish. What if, at this very moment, I really don't feel like singing his praise? What if at this very moment, this kind of psalm is actually really hard for you, as was my opening admission? What if you're not, to use modern language, what if you're not feeling it? What if your present circumstances are so truly horrendous that you cannot bring yourself to praise him, no matter how hard you try? Can I say that I understand all of, all of us have been in those situations at times. But the big idea of Psalm 96 is that our response to God is not grounded in our circumstances. 
Our response to God is not grounded in our circumstances, but in his character, in his tender affection, and in his mercy that is new every morning. I think it's not accidental that at no time does Psalm 96 ever refer to a specific situation, which means, I think, it is always applicable. What I'm going to get us to conclude in a moment is with the last discussion question at the bottom of the page. What helps you want to praise God more? And and conversely, what hinders? Uh, Before you get to that discussion, again, my personal reflection in this week gone by, my suggestion actually is that what helps me to want to praise God more is, is learning more about him, learning what he is like, and telling others because in the process of telling others, it's a message to myself as well. All too often, I think, we get tunnel vision. We see only our particular patch, but what Psalm 96 does is it invites us to take a global snapshot, a cosmic perspective on how all creation sees the Lord, which I think is so wonderful because, well, I'm sure you, like me, are so forgetful that we need reminding. Uh, Once again, like last week, Psalm 95 is a corporate psalm. It is meant to be sung by all of God's people together, not just on our own. So, if you're not feeling it, perhaps you might ask another Christian to tell you why they are able to praise God. Likewise, if you've never known this feeling, that is, if you are not a believer, perhaps you might ask the person next to you. Because I can say to you, they really would love to tell you, but sometimes they've gotten shy or gone quiet because of adverse reaction in the past. But if you are feeling it, then can I urge you, Get on with singing his praise, because he's worthy of it. In fact, he deserves it, and it would be a travesty if it were not made known. You know, at the end of the day, if your club has won, singing the club song in the sheds is always better than singing at home alone. It's always better. And in so doing, you might just enable others to join in, others who are finding it hard, or perhaps who have never known it before. A couple of minutes then, question on your handout at the bottom for discussion. What helps you want to praise God more? And conversely, what hinders? Over to you, and then we will sing after that. All right, thank you very much. Um, Let me lead us in prayer as we conclude. As the band comes up to lead us, let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the great hope and confidence that we have, that what you have begun in his name you'll bring to completion. Uh, We pray that in this week ahead you might continue to uh, fix our eyes firmly on him 
and give us opportunity to testify to his goodness wherever we are to the ends of the earth. Amen.